Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is William Porter. He's the author of Alcohol Explained and Alcohol Explained Too. And I know that some friends of mine and clients of mine have said that this book really helped them. It dives deep into how alcohol works in the body and it's delivered in a very realistic and common sense way. So William, welcome. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're so welcome. I was excited that you were able to come on the podcast. Excellent. Thank you. And I know we talked about a couple different topics that we wanted to dive into today. And we're going to talk about number one, why you drink more than you want to and the idea of moderation. And that's something that every woman I know, including myself, spent a lot of time and effort trying to figure out. And I love William because we're also going to talk about sort of debunking that concept that alcohol is good in small quantities and it's only bad for you if you can't moderate. And alcohol is fine for people who 
can moderate, and we're going to talk about why that's not actually true, and also why addiction is a learning process. So I'm excited to dive into all of that. Excellent. Good. That's going to cover off quite a few topics, but yeah, that should be a good good talk. Yeah, because there is so much in each of them. And why don't we start with why we drink more than we want to? Because I don't think there's any woman or man who might be listening to this who hasn't said, I just need to stop after two drinks. I need to drink water in between, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So the the starting point there. There's a few factors involved. There's the chemistry, the physiology and the psychology. But the best place to start, I think, with alcohol is with the chemical and the physiological side of things. So alcohol is is a sedative. It's a chemical depressant. And when, when I'm using the word depressant, I'm using it in its in its chemical sense here. So what I'm referring to is something that decreases or inhibits nerve activity. So that's why drinking tends to make us feel more relaxed. The problem is that the human brain is reactive. So when you take something like alcohol, which is a sedative, it actually reacts to it. Um, It does it in several different ways. And you've probably heard people talking about GABA and GABA receptors and cortisol and all this kind of stuff. So on on, on a chemical level, it's quite intricate and not fully understood But I think what we need for the purposes of this, I think how I look at it is the human brain essentially works by way of something called homeostasis, which is a very delicate chemical balance. So the human brain creates and excretes its own drugs. So things like cortisol, adrenaline, endorphins, all of these different things. Um, And as I say, it tries to maintain something called homeostasis, which is a delicate chemical balance. Now, the problem is because alcohol is a sedative your brain reacts to it. And as I say, it's a complicated reaction, but what it amounts to is it becomes overly sensitive so that it can still work under the sedating effects of the alcohol. Now, that's all well and good. That's a natural and healthy reaction, which is how your body responds to a poison to try and make you survive it, to try and help you through it. But the problem is when the alcohol wears off, you're left with that oversensitization for a period And that's why people suffer from what's colloquially known as anxiety, that anxious feeling you get after you've been drinking. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. So it's, as I say, it's a very, it's a not fully understood and very complicated chemical process. But what it amounts to essentially is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So whatever relaxing effect you get from alcohol, when it wears off, there's a corresponding feeling of anxiety. Some people, it helps to think of it, um, I sometimes talk about if you're in a vehicle and you're, say you're driving along the road and you're trying to maintain a steady, say, 30 mile an hour pace. So you've got your foot over a certain level on the accelerator and you're going along happily at 30 miles an hour. If you suddenly hit, for example, a load of mud, the vehicle will slow down. So you have to push your foot harder down on the accelerator to maintain that 30 mile an hour speed. Now, the problem is when the mud ends and you go back onto concrete, the car shoots ahead too fast. And that's essentially what your brain is doing. It's being slowed down by the alcohol. So it's making everything a lot more sensitive so that it can work under the effects of the alcohol. And then when the alcohol wears off, that's when you become very overly anxious. um, It differs for different people and it differs for for how much you're drinking. 
that it's usually for most people it's like I don't know if you've ever drunk too much coffee or too much caffeine you feel kind of anxious and unpleasant Mm -hmm. and out of sorts and you can't relax and you don't really know what to do with yourself and that's also why a lot of drinkers wake up in the middle of the night when they've been drinking and can't get back to sleep that's directly related to the alcohol and so when you wake up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. because I went through it that pretty much every night, (laughs) um, (laughs) which sucked. Uh, It's related to your your brain basically being slowed down and then the alcohol wearing off and it being in sort of overdrive. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's the equivalent of um, drinking. This is what I often say to people because people often they they live under the the myth that alcohol actually helps them sleep, but it does the opposite. So say, for example, you need eight hours sleep and you go to bed at 11 o'clock at night and wake up at seven o'clock in the morning and that's you functioning at your best. Drinking alcohol is the equivalent of setting an alarm for three o'clock in the morning and getting up and drinking a few drugs of really strong coffee so that you can't go back to sleep. That, that's what we do when we drink alcohol. That's, just, that's the equivalent effect it has on us. That's so interesting because I remember that the worst feeling was waking up at 3 a.m., A, feeling like garbage, right? Headache, <laughs> yeah. waking up on the couch. That was me. Um, but also laying there and being like, oh, my fucking God, if I don't fall asleep, I am not going to be able to function tomorrow. And yeah. having that sort of racing mind and just not falling asleep till like two hours later. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it, it's that horrific thing because you're physically exhausted. You are really, really tired that your brain, you cannot get back to sleep because of the chemical after effects of the alcohol. And that's one of the most terrible things, actually, that regular drinkers do is that they're constantly depriving themselves of sleep every single night. Yeah. And no wonder you're just dragging and exhausted in life. Yeah, exactly. It's that horrible mix. Most people can deal with being anxious and most people can deal with being tired. But it's an unnatural state to be both because usually in nature, you're either tired or you're anxious it's only when we introduce foreign drugs, for example, alcohol, that we we somehow manage to do both at the same time. We have the anxiety and the exhaustion at the same time. And I'm loving That's, your analogies because I have never heard the one about a car driving through mud, but it makes complete and total sense to me in terms of slowing down your brain and then trying to keep the same speed and coming out of it way too fast. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's... I mean, as I say, it's, it is a, it's quite a complicated process, but I don't, you know, for me personally, when people start talking about GABA reactors and cortisol and all the rest of it, I kind of, you know, I start my eyes start to glaze over a bit. Oh, me too. I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I kind of, and this is going to sound bad, like pretend to understand the GABA yeah, stuff. Exactly. I don't really. Yeah, exactly. And I sort of struggle to relate to it. And That's so why I, I just... bring on other people if you're listening to talk about it. So. <laughs> Yeah, but that's just the terms I think of it in because I mean, I understand it in those terms and I kind of relate to it in those terms. And I think a lot of other people do as well. I think it helps them to that's when they think, oh, actually, that makes sense. And that's why I wake up at, you know, three in the morning or when when you think about like, oh, I'm so tired. You know, people think, okay, the the alcohol gives you that jolt of energy, right, to get through for a lot of women, it's the second shift. And I know you're, you're a father of young kids, so I shouldn't say that that's sexist, but you know, like (laughs) when you come home from work and you still have a lot of stuff to do 
but the concept of I'm going to set an alarm for 3 a.m. That's what I'm essentially doing by taking a drink that helps. But I also know when you're in it, you have a million reasons why you don't, you don't want to drink or you shouldn't drink or you know everything and yet you still do it right yeah in in the short term it is a difficult cycle to get out of apart from a myriad of other reasons but for example sleep is a classic one because although alcohol really affects your sleep later in the night if you're drinking regularly so so for everybody when the end of the day comes and they start to wind down to bed your brain jumps in and it starts closing things down and relaxing things so that you can drift off to sleep. Now, when you drink alcohol regularly, the alcohol is doing that job for your brain. Your brain doesn't need to do it. It relies on the alcohol to do it. So after a few days or weeks of drinking regularly, your brain stops going through that natural winding down process because Mm -hmm. it just relies on the alcohol to do it. So when you stop drinking, you need to go through three or four days. It differs for different people. Some people, it's just a day or two. Some it's a bit longer where you find it really hard to sleep. And all it is, is your brain has stopped going through that winding down process because it's reliant on the alcohol. And when the alcohol's cut out, it takes a few days for your brain to realize there's no longer alcohol. So it needs to go through that process itself. So it's fairly straightforward. It's quite short term. But the drinker doesn't realize it that way. All they know is when they drink, they can go to sleep. And on the odd occasion, they try and stop or cut down. They can't sleep at all. So that kind of feeds into this myth that alcohol is actually helps you sleep. And in fact, it does completely the opposite. Yeah. And I for me, it was sort of around day nine when I finally got my first really good night of sleep. And I don't know, you said it's a short period of time. Is that kind of common for everyone or do people sleep better earlier? It it does differ for different people. Now, if you're a regular, so so binge drinkers won't have that. Mm. They'll have the after effects of the alcohol. And if they've been drinking very heavily, that oversensitization might last for a day or two. So they'll actually find it hard to sleep because they're still got the after effects of that almost like that what is equivalent to a massive caffeine hit um now if you're drinking regularly it's a slightly different reason it's because your brain's not going through that winding down process so it does differ from person to person depending on what your pattern of drinking is but it does go fairly quickly mm-hmm. um, and of course the problem with sleep as well it's not just a question of stop sleeping now and then go to sleep immediately Because firstly, there's the process I've just talked about. But secondly, if you've been drinking fairly regularly for a few years or even decades, that will impact because sleep is like a habit. So even if you're not drinking, if you set the alarm for three o'clock every night and get up and go to the toilet and go back to bed and then stop setting the alarm for the next two or three nights, you're in the habit of that. So you will wake up at that time. So when you quit drinking, you need the chemical balance to go back to normal in your brain but then you need to get back into a normal sleeping pattern. And of course, for most people, if they're drinking fairly regularly, they won't have had a good night's sleep in all the years or decades they've been sleeping. Oh so my God, that was take, me, man. I was scary, I was a daily drinker for years and years. Yeah, so. it's, it's astounding the effect it has on you. And then of course, it takes a while for you to then catch up on the lost sleep. 
So in fact, if you're quitting drinking now, day one, you're not going to be waking up tomorrow feeling excellent. Mm -hmm. It is going to take a few weeks to get there. But boy, is it worth it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely worth it. Okay, so why do we drink more than we want to? Why do we have trouble moderating? Right. So, so this is one of the, so so we've now got this sort of chemical reaction in our minds at the moment. So now we see alcohol as something that has a withdrawal. When that drink wears off, the natural tendency is to take another one. Now, what a lot of people will then say is, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. I understand that when anybody, and this isn't just, you know, heavy drinkers or so-called alcoholics or whatever, everyone has alcohol withdrawal. And what I'm talking about with withdrawal is that chemical imbalance that causes an unpleasant feeling when the initial dose of the drug wears off. And more importantly, the quickest way to get rid of that is to have another dose of the drug. Because if you're, you know, if you think about it, if you're oversensitized because your brain's geared up to be working under the stating effects of the alcohol and the alcohol isn't there, if you put alcohol back in, you immediately feel lots better. So everyone has this unpleasant feeling But if you are someone, for example, who has never drunk before and is just having a glass of wine once a week or once a month or a glass of champagne at a wedding, they will experience that unpleasant feeling. But it will be really minor, firstly, because your brain becomes more proficient at countering the alcohol. So the more you drink for, the more pronounced that withdrawal becomes. But much more importantly, we're now moving on to the psychological factors. So. If someone has never been what we will call it addicted, but what addiction actually means is you associate that unpleasant feeling with having another drink to get rid of it. Okay, so if you take someone who can take or leave alcohol, all that means is when the alcohol wears off, yes, there is an unpleasant feeling there, but they just get on with the day. It wouldn't dawn on them to take another drink to get rid of it it wears off and either they're asleep or they might have one with lunch and then walk away and they do feel slightly out of sorts from it, but it just never dawns on them to have another one. But what we learn over the years and years of drinking is that a drink wears off, it leaves a slightly unpleasant feeling. And when we have another drink, it removes that unpleasant feeling. And so as the years go by, what we learn mainly on a subconscious level is that when a drink finishes, an unpleasant feeling starts to build up and we need another one to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Now, that's learned behavior. And when you learn that, every alcoholic drink, when it wears off, creates the desire for the next one. And that's why people find it hard to moderate when they reach that stage. Because when you reach that stage, it doesn't matter how determined you are. Let's say, for example, you've got someone who's used to drinking X amount and they decide it too much and they're going to now stop or cut down or whatever it is. So they have one glass of wine or one beer. It wears off and it leaves an unpleasant feeling. And that is the trigger for their subconscious to kick in and say, I want another drink. So if you're approaching the situation by saying, you know, take a completely average everyday situation you come in from work sit down in front of the tv and you think i want a drink to help me relax okay so you need a chemical to help you relax into the evening now after 15 minutes that chemical has worn off so you started off by saying i'm not content how i am i need a chemical to make me feel more relaxed well for a starter that's going to wear off anyway and you'll be right back where you started But actually, then when we factor in, it doesn't just leave 
the feeling doesn't just leave leaving you as you were before it leaves off with an intensified feeling of anxiety so the natural tendency is to keep on drinking and that's why it becomes so difficult for people to moderate there's an add-on to that as well in that the brain becomes used to the amount you drink so say for example every evening you sit down and you drink a bottle of wine that first glass of wine is the sending a message to your brain saying over the next three or four hours you can expect a bottle of wine's worth of alcohol to go inside you if you're doing that for several weeks months and years that's what your brain is conditioned to do. So if you then say to yourself, you know what, I'll just have one glass, your brain hasn't caught up yet. So it's oversensitizing to the tune of a bottle and you're only drinking a glass. So you're actually worse off than had you not had the drink at all because you've got all the additional anxiety. And that's why a lot of the time you have people who stop drinking and can't sleep. It's even worse if you have one. If you're used to having two or three and you just have one, it's even worse because you get that coffee, that oversensitization, that caffeine hit right at the start of the evening. And you mentioned when it wears off, you have that sort of anxiety or or agitated feeling and you want another drink to come back. You said 15 minutes. Is that literally how long it takes for the no, effect of a glass to wear off? No, it it does differ from different person to person. But the interesting, one of the things with alcohol is we drink it, which is very unusual for a drug. Most drugs, there's four ways you can get you, you can consume a drug. So the effects of a drug are felt when they enter when it enters into our bloodstream. Okay, there's four ways you can get a drug into your bloodstream. The first one is to inject it into your vein, so that's directly into the bloodstream. Um, the second one is to inhale it like cigarettes or, you know, hash or whatever else people inhale. Um, so what it does, it goes into your lungs and it passes from there directly into the bloodstream. So, again, it hits your bloodstream really quickly. Um, the third way is to snort it. So things like cocaine, people snort it. It goes up into capillaries in your nose and then hits the bloodstream again. So these three methods, it hits your bloodstream really, really quickly with alcohol. It has to go into your stomach and into your small intestine before it's absorbed into the bloodstream. So it's slightly unusual and different from all the other drugs in that it takes that much longer for it to enter your bloodstream. And of course, how quickly it enters your bloodstream will depend on a lot of things, not least of which how full your stomach is at the time. So that's why when people drink on an empty stomach, it hits them a lot harder. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, me included, used to much prefer the drinks before the meal to afterwards because we feel the effects of them far quicker and they're far more noticeable. So it does very much differ from person to person. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, just probably worth mentioning there. That's one of the reasons why people um, take so long to become addicted to alcohol. Because I mentioned slightly the subconscious. A lot of addiction takes place in our subconscious mind. And it's when our subconscious links the taking of the drug with the relieving of the withdrawal. Now, for cigarette smoking, that's a very obvious thing. You know, you, you as you're smoking a cigarette, you get that massive nicotine hit. Then the nicotine wears off, leaving a withdrawal. And you have another cigarette to replace it. So very quickly, your brain identifies smoking as the way that you relieve the withdrawal. Mm-hmm. But because you've got this 15, 20 minute, half an hour, whatever it is, time difference between drinking a drink and it actually hitting you, 
it takes years and years for your subconscious to actually pick up on the link. And that's one of the, that's the main reason why alcohol takes far longer to become addicted to is nothing to do with the chemical effect of it. It's purely to do with the fact that we drink it rather than inhale it or inject it. That's really interesting. And so some people will say to me, but I don't drink in the morning, right? And I also like, I didn't drink in the morning unless it was a Sunday and I was at brunch and then it was a mimosa, like, you know, caveat, (laughs) caveat, but like normally wake up, feel like total garbage, get my kids ready, go to work, drive in, et cetera, come home at six. And I'm sure at four o'clock I was doing, you know, all morning was, I'm not going to drink late afternoon was, well, you know, like yeah. it's been a hard yeah. day, whatever it yeah. is, et cetera. tomorrow to stop, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, you go that whole time in withdrawal, especially if you're drinking a bottle of wine a night, like I was, and you aren't drinking then to, you know, get through the withdrawal. So what's up there if people are like, yeah, but I, but I don't drink during the day. I just drink in the evenings kind of thing. So this is, this brings us on to another psychological factor that's involved here, which is cravings. Mm-hmm. So a craving is a fairly, people often think about cravings and they think it's something that, you know, like it's, I don't know, like a meteor falling out of the sky. There's nothing you can do about it. It just hits you. But actually a craving is a thought process we go through and it's a several stage thought process. So the first thing is the thought of an alcoholic drink enters your head. That doesn't cause the craving. What causes the craving is what we do with that thought. If we start thinking about how nice it would be to have a drink and start entertaining the possibility of having one, that's when the craving intensifies. So like if you're trying to diet or something, you know, you you're probably okay, but when you start thinking about food, it becomes unbearable. And the more you torture yourself with the thought of it, the harder it is. And if you actually sit down with your favorite food in front of you, it becomes even more unbearable. So the torture is made up, one, of fantasizing and anticipating it, but secondly, allowing the possibility of actually to enter your mind. Okay, so addiction isn't just the withdrawal. It's the psychological craving that goes with it. Now, it helps sometimes to relate it to smoking. Imagine if you've got a fairly heavy smoker. So say you've got someone who's smoking 60 cigarettes a day and they've been smoking for a couple of decades. So they're clearly addicted to smoking, right? Let's say they go to a friend's house. They're sitting in the garden so they can smoke freely. Um, There's a few drinks being poured. How long do you reckon it would be before they were crawling up the wall for a cigarette? It, It would be seconds, you know, that they couldn't go a few minutes without a cigarette. And if they couldn't have one, they'd be intensely miserable. Okay. But these same smokers will go to bed at night and sleep six, seven, eight hours without having a cigarette. And these days, a lot of the time, people will even wake up in the morning. A lot of smokers these days don't smoke at home. So they'll wait till they're in the car going to work or whatever before they have that first cigarette. So not only have they got seven or eight hours at night time, they will then get up and last another hour in the morning or so or they get ready for work before they leave for the office or whatever and then have that cigarette. Okay, so that person is heavily addicted, but the reason they can go for that period of time is because they're not craving. They may be thinking of, like, for example, when they wake up, they may be really looking forward to that cigarette, but 
they know they can have it in a bit so they can they can stand it that's all really we do with drinking because drinking has got as opposed to other drugs it's in many ways unique in that we have so many fixed barriers with it you know like if someone smokes it's perfectly natural for them to light up first thing in the morning but for drinkers if you wake up and start drinking you've got a serious problem so most people we have these very clear barriers conscious or subconscious that we don't drink in certain situations so for example you wake up in the morning yes you will be feeling tired and anxious you'll have the alcohol withdrawal and you'll be feeling unpleasant because of it and actually if you woke up and poured yourself a glass of wine and had it first thing in the morning you feel a whole world better but the fact of the matter is you're not thinking along those lines because you do not drink in the morning so you're not torturing yourself with the thought of a glass of wine. What you're thinking about is getting up, getting the kids up. Am I going to get to work? I've got this report to do. I've got that to do. All the stresses and strains. And then you go to work and you're working away. All through that day, the withdrawal is there. And if at any point you stopped and had a drink, you would feel loads better for it by relieving the withdrawal. But you don't do it because you don't drink in the morning and you don't drink at work. And what that means is you're not torturing yourself with the thought of it. Mm-hmm. but come four o'clock when the end is in sight and the possibility of having a glass of wine there, that's when it's incredibly difficult because that's when you have the two parts of addiction, not only the withdrawal, but also the craving because you're allowing yourself at that point to drink. Yeah. And it's also socially acceptable, right? To drink after work or it's, it's common. There's usually alcohol around as opposed to in the morning. That's clearly, you know, it's sort of like what, when you're pregnant, Taboo, there is a yeah, lot yeah, exactly. of social pressure not to drink. Yeah, so it swaps around yeah. completely. At the beginning of the day, it's completely unacceptable to drink. But at the eve- you know, the end of the day, at the evening, everyone's wondered if there's something wrong with you because you're not drinking. Yeah. Which is completely rever- – and it's purely arbitrary to do with – I mean, mainly because alcohol is intoxicating. Mm-hmm. So if you're drinking in the morning, by the end of the day, you're completely intoxicated. So and have trouble and... functioning and, exactly. and carrying yeah. on your tasks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One question I had, and I actually, I watched a Facebook Live that you did um, in March. And I actually loved it because you were, you were, you were kind of pissed and I really enjoyed that because I was like, Oh, that's so blunt and perfect. And you were going on about you, uh, there had been some comments on someone's post about, um, about drinking being, you know, quote unquote, not bad. And you went through like Someone commented, you cannot define alcohol as good or bad. A little bit can benefit you or wine consumed in moderation and is fine in excess. Like anything else, it's dangerous. The key is moderation. Also, the idea that like we, meaning people who drink problematically, can't drink because we can't moderate. But for others who can it isn't a problem. And you were like, that is, you know, an American speak total bullshit. And let me tell you why. So as I'm saying that, what is your reaction to those comments? Because they're pretty common. They are common. There's a few points to say there. I hope I remember to to talk about all of them. The, The first one is that kind of belief that a little bit of alcohol is good for you. It's an addictive drug. Okay. 
people can take it or leave it because they're not addicted to it. But if you take enough of it for a long enough period of time, you become addicted to it. Okay, it really is that simple. People don't say, you know, a little isn't is fine for you if you're talking about heroin or cigarette smoking or something. And exactly the same principles apply. People have this belief and we're bombarded with it constantly about things like red wine being good for you. Okay, so so it's very, very simple. But a lot of people struggle with the concepts. Alcohol is a carcinogen. Okay, it's a class one carcinogen in the the who have classified all these different substances into different classes. It's class one along with cigarette smoking and asbestos. Okay, it has no health benefits at all. Right. Wine, for example, let's take red wine because that's the thing we hear most about. It's a mix of primarily two things, grape juice and alcohol. Okay, we humans are designed to eat fruit and there's a lot of um, minerals and vitamins in fruit that are very good for us. For example, red, red grapes. So when you take wine, you've got red grape juice, which is good for you and alcohol, which is incredibly bad for you. So when you read these studies that red wine is good for you, they always point to things that are in the grapes. It's never the alcohol. The alcohol is a is a carcinogen. There's nothing good about it. Um, having red wine for health is like having a, a, a cigarette and an apple and saying it's got vitamin C in it. It's good for me. OK, you're taking a good thing and a bad thing and mixing it together. What you often hear is um, a lot of studies that say people who drink a lot die younger, but people who are alcohol free die younger. And there's this happy middle ground with people who just have one or two glasses a couple of times a week and they have a much longer life expectancy. Okay, that again is just nonsense. The reason that people who don't drink at all tend to have a shorter life expectancy is very simply because in this society, it's normal to drink. Okay, most people drink. There's a growing number of people like you and me who make a lifestyle choice not to drink. But a few years ago, this is coming more and more pronounced now, but up to a few years ago, those numbers were quite small. So when you look at the cohort of the population that don't drink, there's a few reasons for it. One is that they've already been chronically addicted to alcohol for a number of years. Two is that they're in the very lowest socioeconomic strata of society. So they literally, they're on the poverty line. They cannot afford to drink. Mm. Um, Another class of people are people in prison alcohol is not very readily available in prison. Um, And the fourth people in that cohort are people with other underlying health conditions. So they're very seriously ill, which is why they don't drink. Okay. That skews the figures. Okay. The reason people in that cohort die young is for all of those factors, not surprise, surprise, because they're not regularly imbibing a carcinogen. Yeah. Okay. The other thing that alcohol does, and this is, this is a, thing common amongst all drug addicts is that they have a perception that if they can take less of the drug they're taking they get all the good with none of the bad okay it's not possible it's not possible with other drugs and it's not possible with alcohol so even if you were able to just have one glass of wine once a week that glass of wine would still wear off, leaving a corresponding feeling of anxiety. It would still ruin your sleep. So the more you drink, the worse your sleep is. 
that even one small glass of wine interrupts your natural sleeping pattern. There's no escape from it. It's not possible to have the good without the bad with alcohol or any other drug. You take less of it, you have less of the good and less of the bad at the same time. Yeah, the other thing alcohol does with you, with everyone, and this happens whether you have a massive amount or a small amount, it increases your heart rate. Mm. So you sometimes see these memes saying a glass of wine increases your heart rate like it's a good thing. The biggest killer with alcohol is not liver disease, which most people think it's cardiovascular. And the reason for that is it accelerates your heart rate without any associated physical activity. Now, physical fitness is a lot to do with blood composition. So when you're using your muscles, your muscles need oxygen and other nutrients and that oxygen and other nutrients gets to them by way of the red blood cells. So when you're constantly using your muscles, your blood, your heart has to pump faster to get the oxygen around your body. When you um, exercise regularly, there's a few changes in the blood. One, the, the blood cells are replaced more quickly, which means they're younger and younger blood cells carry more oxygen. And secondly, there's a greater concentration of them. So the blood cells will clump together more so that every pump of the heart gets a higher number of blood cells and consequently more oxygen around. So that's why people who are fitter have a lower resting heart rate. It's the blood composition that changes. Now, the opposite is is also true. If you're increasing your heart rate without physical activity, you're getting too much oxygen to the blood, to the muscles. So the blood goes the other way. It starts to thin out. And that's why there's this massive correlation between drinking and heart disease. It's because when you drink alcohol, even one drink, you're accelerating your heart rate without associated physical movement. Um, And that's it's actually the opposite of exercising. It's eroding your fitness. That's really interesting, right? Because it increases your heart rate like a stimulant, but it's also a depressant, right? It's sort of, how does that work? That's that's evidence of your body's physiological reaction to it. So when you drink a glass of alcohol, your body's already kicking in with all those stimulants and cortisol to try and counter the alcohol. That's now, the, the interest- mud analogy. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the mud kicks in. So the accelerator's going down. This is where it gets a bit more complicated. With heart rate, it will go up, but it never you have to take a lot of drugs for your heart rate to drop massively because normally your heart has no reason to drop. Mm-hmm. So although you can take drugs to increase it, mostly the drugs won't decrease it because it has all like a fail safe cutoff. So it tends to go up without going down. Yeah. So when you're drinking, the stimulant effect, i.e. your body's reaction to it, kicks in almost immediately. But what you normally find is when you're drinking, your heart rate will go up a bit. And when the alcohol wears off, it goes through the roof that's why when people wake up at three four in the morning they can really feel their heart beating fast yeah that's the that's the effect of that but the other thing there is with alcohol you know one or one is good for you even one accelerates your heart rate now the other thing apart from killing you off with a massive heart attack in your early 50s the other thing it does it affects you here and now because when your heart rate increases your body tells you to slow down and sit down Okay, that's just a simple fail-safe mechanism. The faster your heart's going, the more you want to sit down and rest, which is why when you're trying to get fit, it's so much hard work because your body's constantly saying, I don't like this, stop. Okay, so when you drink wine or beer or whatever and your heart rate increases, it makes you feel lethargic. It robs you of energy. 
So not only does it destroy your sleep, but the increased heart rate actually makes you feel even more tired and like you just want to sit down all the time. That's interesting. And so when people say you can't define alcohol as good or bad, you're like, that is total crap. (laughs) Yeah, it's bad. It's It's just bad. it's, It's bad and it's really bad depending on how much you consume. Yeah, I think the problem is people, everyone is very defensive of their drug of choice. Okay, they 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 want to keep taking it, so they justify it till they're blue in the face. Yeah, and that's why because you know what is it, eighty seven percent or something of the population drink. So you've got loads and loads of people all trying to justify their drinking. So they say, oh, it's good for me. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't doesn't hurt me. I only drink a beer. I only drink in the evenings. Blah blah blah. And it, it, it's just all these basically lies they're telling themselves to try yeah. and justify why they're continuing to do something that frankly most people these days know in their heart of heart isn't doing them any favors yeah yeah and it's you know it's you justify it because it is addictive and it's so socially it's like the shorthand between adults because everybody's kind of protective of it and we've been marketed yeah. to so much that, you know, even health professionals are bought into, hey, don't take this away. I need this. I want this. You know, nothing to see here. Let's move on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I heard of someone the other day who went to their doctor. Now, she was drinking two bottles of wine a night. So, so off, you know, a, a substantial amount of drink. And, and she told certainly... her doctor that I, I thought everyone cut that down to two <laughs> or three glasses of wine a couple times a week. Like you're not supposed to give the real number. No. So, so she told her doctor she was drinking, you know, a couple of bottles of wine a night and she wanted to stop. What did he suggest? And he said, don't worry about it. I drink more than that. No way. And, and that's, that's what we're faced with in society. Dude. Yeah. So, so it's just, it's not, People are just not interested in stopping. And, that, and that's one of the things why I got so, so animated about this whole thing is because that kind of view that we who have quit drinking are the damaged ones, that's just not how I see it. Because yeah. most people, the easy choice is to keep drinking. That's yes. what people want to do. They don't want to have to admit that their little friend isn't a friend at all, that it's destroying them. They might not be chronically addicted to it. They may only drink once a week or twice a week or in the evenings or whatever. But no matter how small an amount they're drinking, it's not doing them any good at all. Um, and it takes courage and imagination to think, you know what, I'm going to stop doing this And this is what sort of irritated me with those comments is for me, even someone who can't quit and can't get past day one has got more imagination and courage than the 87% of the people who can't even bear the thought of attempting to quit. So someone who has said, you know what, this isn't working for me. I don't care what everyone else is doing. This is not right. And I want to stop it. They aren't the damaged ones. They're the ones with the courage and imagination. And it, as I say, it doesn't matter to me whether they're succeeding or not. They've already, they're already a step ahead of the pack yeah. by realizing something's wrong. I mean, it is seriously so brave to try to break away from this when so much of society is pressuring you in the opposite direction. And that's why I think it's so awesome that, you know, you wrote this book. It's one of the reasons I started this podcast to just start talking about it a little bit more so that people who are like, 
yikes, this isn't working for me, but everybody I know drinks to be like, actually, there is an entire universe of women and men out there who have decided to go alcohol free and aren't necessarily adopting any kind of a label other than this shit is bad for you. And I'm trying to live a healthier life. And that that is a legitimate choice to be proud of. Yeah. For me, it's about quality of life. It's as simple as that. It's just, there is no comparison to life as a drinker compared to not drinking and take something as simple as sleep. So I know I've mentioned sleep a few times, but it probably helps just to go into a bit more detail. People think that sleep is just close your eyes, go unconscious for a few hours, and then you open them and you're good to go. It doesn't work like that. Sleep is all about going through different cycles. Um, There's a few different cycles of sleep. There's something called deep sleep, which, as you would expect, you're very deeply asleep, very deeply unconscious, very unresponsive. But at the other end of the scale, there's something called REM sleep. Now, it's a very interesting thing, REM sleep. That's where we dream. Um, And when um, they put sensors on people and monitored them in REM sleep, their brain lights up almost as if they're fully awake. Now, there's a lot about REM sleep we don't understand as human beings. But what we do know is it's absolutely crucial. They've done experiments with rats where they've starved them of REM sleep and they've been dead within a few weeks. So it's really crucial part of sleep. Now, the problem is, so, so that's the, really the thing you need to take away is that sleep isn't about just going unconscious. It's about different sleep cycles. And the main differentiating factor in these sleep cycles is how deeply unconscious you are. Now, with drinkers for the first part of the night, because of the alcohol, they're too heavily sedated to get into REM sleep. Usually in a natural sleep cycle, you should have six or seven um, cycles of REM sleep. With drinkers, they usually only have two. Wow. And then, of course, for the second part of the night, you can't get to sleep at all because of the overstimulation. So you're completely ruining your sleep. Now, as I say, there's a lot we human beings don't know about sleep, but it's crucial to mental and physical health. There's been all these studies to show that people who don't sleep enough have increased depression and anxiety and cancer and all of these things. But it's just common sense. When you sleep, your body and your brain repairs itself. It's physically and mentally restorative. Now, going back to what I was talking about before, for decades, it's the equivalent of setting your alarm for three in the morning and drinking loads of coffee. And then to get back to a state of, for me, it's about sleeping properly. You feel 10 times better than you ever did when you were drinking, even when actually drinking that first glass, you know, that, that wonderful moment that really drags you in, which is sitting down at the end of the day and having that glass of wine. You feel better than that all the time. Not to say you don't have bad days, but you you just start everything so much better. So you've got that aspect. Your heart rate's lower, so you've got more energy. You lose that anxiety that's constantly with you. You just feel more physically and mentally resilient. So for me, it's, it's forget whether you've got a problem with it, whether you're addicted to it, whether it's doing this. It's a simple fact that life is so much better when you quit. It's a simple lifestyle choice. Yeah. And when you said it's all about quality of life, I know we haven't talked about your story, but how is your quality of life better now that you stopped drinking than it was when you were drinking? So I I, I would have told you when I was so, so yeah, no, I, I haven't gone in massively into my story, but I, I, I was in the military. I served in Iraq. Um, so I 
So you were a paratrooper, out, is that right? I was a paratrooper. Yeah, That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, so if I went, so I stopped seven and a bit years ago. So let's say I jumped back eight or nine years ago and you met me then, I would have been a very heavy drinker and I would have told you I drank because of my military service. I drank because I had marital problems. I drank because I had young children and I found the transition to parenthood very difficult. I didn't like my job at the time. I didn't like the house we were living at the time. It was far too small for us. So I would have turned around and said to you, I drink because of these reasons. These are my, you know, my big reasons. And I can't stop drinking because of these problems. When I quit drinking, I didn't appreciate the extent to which those problems, yes, they were problems and very real problems, but problems that I was more than capable of dealing with. What alcohol had done when I was in the alcohol withdrawal phase, that anxious, unpleasant phase where everything looks scary and too much trouble, those problems looked 10 times worse than they were. And then when I drank alcohol, I was putting my brain back to its normal chemical balance. So those problems would shrink down. And so it seemed like to me I was drinking and that helped me cope with all of these problems. But actually what alcohol was doing was removing my ability to cope with them and then kind of partially restoring it when I was drinking. So what I found when I drunk was, um, when I stopped drinking, is that all of those problems, yes, they were problems and they still caused me worry, but I just got on with them. Some of them I could do something about, some of them I couldn't do anything about, but I just lived with them and got on with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, I think a lot of it was because I'd quit drinking and I got back to like a more stable, resilient, confident person that, yes, I managed to change my job, the marital problems. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think anyone's marriage is quite perfect. But when you're not drinking all the time, things got a lot better. I kind of felt, I found parenthood massively easier. Yes. Because the two things I always say you need with parenthood, with young children, you need patience and energy. Alcohol robs you of both of them. So although I would have said I was drinking because I find the transition to parenthood difficult, the reason I was finding it difficult is because I was tired all the time and I had no energy to deal with two young boys. Whereas now I actually enjoy it. I enjoy parenthood more now in my mid forties than I did in my late thirties because I've got so much more energy mm-hmm. and more patience. And yes, it is a pain in the backside sometimes. <laughs> with them. How old are your kids? Uh, eight and 10. Yeah. I have 13 and seven. So oh, yeah, right. I yeah, hear yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So, so that, I think that was the big thing for me. It was realizing that these big problems in my life, they weren't the big problems I thought they were. They were of differing degrees of difficulty and caused me differing degrees of irritation or, prop, you know, um, mental disquiet, call it what you like. But actually, a lot of it was exaggerated by the drinking. And I don't think I appreciated the degree that that was the case. So in terms of actual life changes, my life's it has improved, but a lot of it is just having the mental resilience to kind of cope with things in a much better way. I love that you said that. And I actually wrote it down and was nodding when you said resilience, because I realized that when I was drinking, I mean, I really felt like I couldn't cope with my life. I felt like it was all too hard and anything extra at work would be like, oh my God, it would send me over the edge or there's no way I can add this to my plate, right? I was Mm. doing the same thing. I was drinking a bottle of wine a night. I was working full time. I had two little kids. 
you know, I was frustrated by my husband because when you're drinking, you're, you're frustrated Mm -hmm. by everything and sensitive and irritable and all those things. And when I stopped drinking, you know, it wasn't that my whole life was better. My, I had the same boss. I had the same schedule. I still had two little kids. It was, but it was a whole lot better. Like it was like Mm. 70% better just by removing the alcohol because I wasn't a fucking anxious mess who was trying to overcompensate for being bone tired and Mm. in alcohol withdrawal and trying to keep everything going despite being checked out for three hours every night and hung over every morning. And so it was so much better. And then on top of that, I was also just better able to cope right? I was more resilient and I was better, more mentally and emotionally stable so that I could actually deal with the problems that did exist. Yeah. I I, I often think of it that stopping drinking gave me back my ability to just say, I don't care and to just (laughs) not worry about stuff and stuff happens and it's, there's, you know, stuff happens. It's bad stuff. You, some stuff you can deal with, some stuff you can't, but just to think, so what? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. just life like and everything kind of rolls it... off your back a little yeah, bit yeah I think there's still things that derail you there yeah. absolutely are things that derail you but they're few and far between now whereas when you're drinking heavily there's stuff that derails you every day and it's but, just but when you're drinking you can't see that or you don't no. right you're that's, just like that's the thing you're so deep in it you're like this is why I drink this is why I need to drink yeah. today sucked this sucked this happened that's the problem it all happens back to front because it's when we're drinking that we obtain the relief from it yeah so everything looks awful you're constantly throwing your toys out the pram and having a mood about things and everything's too much to cope with but it's when you sit down in the evening um, and start relieving that withdrawal and anesthetizing all of that anxiety that things get back to normal so yeah. it becomes very hard for people to really appreciate that alcohol isn't the friend because it's when they're drinking that they feel relief and it's when they're not drinking that everything starts to become unpleasant. So because it happens back to front, it's incredibly difficult for people. And I would say to people, if you're in the position of wanting to stop but you haven't quite got there yet, it is a leap in faith yeah. because you do – because I remember doing it myself just being – desperately unhappy um and thinking stopping drinking isn't going to change this because it's not going to change all of these problems and it can't do so to a degree you have to trust the process yeah um and realize things do improve massively but it does as i say it takes a few weeks yeah but it's so worth it when you get there and and life isn't perfect there are still bad days and all the rest of it but the bad days become fewer and fewer And the good days become more and more. And I would say if you're listening to this, if you're listening to this podcast or reading William's book or, or this far in the episode, like something deep inside of you is saying, yeah, I believe it. I believe that it is better, or I'm ready to take that leap of faith. I just need to do it. And we know that's hard, right? We drank for Mm -hmm. years knowing that alcohol was a problem and yet not being able or not being ready to stop. Like I would always be like, I know I have to stop eventually. I just don't want to stop yet. And I didn't realize how many years I was keeping myself in that kind of shitty 
average mm-hmm. place. Um, but it is a leap of faith. And that's why I always suggest like, just do a hundred day experiment, just mm. stop, get to a hundred days. If you don't feel better, you learn something. I don't know anyone who's reached a hundred days and been like, you know what? That was better back there. I'm cool. <laughs> Cause you've like gotten yeah. through the withdrawal. You've gotten through some of the social shit you've yeah. got, you know, so if you're ready or if you know, alcohol is a problem, but you, you aren't ready to take that leap of faith, just do it as an experiment. Yeah, I would say as well to echo that, um, I've never heard anyone regret stopping. I've heard of lots, too many people saying, I wish I'd done this years ago. And that's something I think is just not wanting to depress people because my my (laughs) eldest son's just turned 10. It was only a couple of weeks ago, his 10th birthday. And it's kind of scary, isn't it? Because it's like a decade and it doesn't seem that long ago we first had him and time passes yeah so quickly and whether you believe in an afterlife or nothing or whatever you believe this is your one shot at life okay And, and one of the worst things to do is to wake up and think I've improved my life massively what would have happened if I'd done this 10 years ago so although in many ways like what we were talking about before it's always so easy to put off quitting because you know what, today was a really bad day and it's going to be so much easier to quit tomorrow. And there's this natural tendency to put it off and put it off and put it off. Whereas really you need to do it the other way around because days just add up into weeks and months and years. And before you know it, decades have gone by and they're decades that you spent tired and anxious and lethargic when you could have been feeling energetic and positive um, and all the rest of it. That is exactly what you said. And I think that is the perfect place to end because, you know, if you're listening to this, just take that leap of faith. It does not take that much longer. It doesn't take that long to feel better. And if you want more information about this, I have to say William's book, Alcohol Explained, is wonderful. I know you have a second book, Alcohol Explained Too, but tell us a little bit about those and how people can learn more about what you do. Okay, so the easiest place to go is the website, which is alcoholexplained.com. The first five chapters of the first book are on there, so you can read them and see if it's the kind of thing you're interested in. So if you like it, then you'll probably enjoy the rest of it. The second book's more of the same in many ways, um, the second book is more geared towards long-term sobriety. So the first book talks talks a lot, lot about the, the physiology and socializing and that kind of aspect. The second book kind of builds on that um, and I suppose kind of develops a more long-term strategy and worldview, if you like, for staying sober. Because a lot of the problems with alcohol, it's it's our beliefs that are constantly holding us back. So we believe yeah. we need it to sleep and relax and to socialize. But we also have quite deeply ingrained beliefs about sobriety and drinking. So we see ourselves as drinkers and it becomes a part of our self-image. And we see people who don't drink as boring and not very fun and Oh my God, I was there. I literally yeah, yeah. used to call myself a red wine girl as like a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes a part of who you are, doesn't it? Part of your, your identity. You your, have yeah, every, absolutely. This means I'm fun. I'm a mom, but I'm not all about the mom. You know? Yeah, thing. yeah, like yeah. I'm, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
So, yeah, so the second book's a bit more kind of gauged towards that, I suppose, and sort of breaking things down. But as I say, the best place to go really is the website because there's a few articles on there and and, and the first five chapters of the first book are on there. Yeah, and I know you do Facebook Lives pretty often. Yeah, so there's a Facebook group, How Col Explained. It's quite big at the moment. It's about 13,000 people in it now. But every Friday I do a live. So what I normally do is post in the group on a Thursday to say, doing a live tomorrow and people put questions in and then I read out the questions and answer them. Um, sometimes I've got guests on, so I've got a guest to, well, this Friday, I've got a guest on um, and other times it's just me. But if you're interested in that, then there's a, I've got a YouTube channel. So whenever I do a live, they're uploaded to the, to the YouTube channel. and that um, Yeah. That and I'll, <laughs> I'll post a link in the show notes to the okay. one that I watched that I love. That one that was yeah, like, this is total famous. crap. And you were, you were quite a, <laughs> you know, animated about it. And I, yeah. I would say somewhat pissed off. And I actually was like, I like that. That's very cool. It had been a long week. And I was just going through for digging the questions out. And and I think this poor girl had put something on there to say, like she was in a yoga group or something. And they were constantly posting about wine. And she said about to the yoga teacher, yes. you know, should we really be talking about an addictive? So, so it went on from there. And a lot of people were saying, oh, but a little is good for you and all the rest of it. So it yeah, I'll of, put the link in because I, I liked it when you were like, this frankly irritates me quite Probably a bit or whatever it was. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.